Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try to plan our vacations at the exact moment the streaming TV industry goes insane. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and in a moment, I will be joined through the magic of editing by uh, my bat girl, Diane Nora. But Diane is still taking a much-deserved vacation, and as you might expect, I'm about to tell you, we recorded this episode before Warner Brothers Discovery, everyone's favorite Wabro Disco... briefly caused every fan of HBO Max on the entire planet to freak out because suddenly we all thought HBO Max was going to be canceled, destroyed, um, eaten by the Property Brothers for a delicious steak dinner. Mm. But you know what we found out instead? Very little that we did not already know. Uh, in short, Warner Brothers Discovery is going to combine HBO Max and Discovery Plus in the summer, or by the summer, of 2023. That, that's it. That's that's all we know. And we pretty much already knew that, because in the spring, Wabro Disco's incoming CFO uh, basically told us that. So, again, that's not a huge shock. What did send people, I think, into a little bit of a panic was that they uh, canceled the Batgirl movie and removed several existing existing HBO Max original films from the streaming platform, you can still rent those or buy them on other platforms, but you can no longer stream them as part of your subscription. And uh, that seems to indicate they are not super interested in the HBO Max original films. And the question on the table is, are they interested in HBO Max original series? That's the question. And Diane and I will dig into that question and so much more in two weeks' time when we return from our restful streaming vacations, where I have been enjoying season one of Ghosts on CBS, now streamable on Paramount+. Plus. You might think I'm joking, but I am not. I love Ghosts! But in this episode that you're about to hear, we're going to talk about another show that we are actively loving, The Resort, a mysterious new series that is not what it seems on Peacock. And then we're going to share our end-of-season notes on this summer's breakout hit, FX's The Bear, streaming on Hulu. All that and more on this episode that you are literally listening to right now. So don't worry, Wabro Disco will live to panic us another day today. We have this for you, your favorite theme song, a second time, because I just know how much you love royalty-free music. Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we uh, take a little vacation to the streaming universe and uncover the mysteries involved. I am the uh, four-nosed yellow snake that you should not cross, Chris Barlow. And I am joined across the internet by uh, my favorite time-traveling vacation love story couple, Diane and Nora. Diane Nora, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am excited to talk about a very strange show this week. As am I. We watched the first three episodes of The Resort, which we will be uh, reviewing later in this episode and is streaming now on Peacock. Yes, it is a show that literally bills itself as from the people who brought you Palm Springs and Mr. Robot. And it does feel like a show from the people who brought you both of those things. But that is coming later. And even later than that, we are going to do a little rewind review on one of this summer's most unexpected hits, and truly a hit, uh, Hulu's The Bear, 
FX's The Bear on Hulu because, you know, they want to really hold on to that branding. Uh, We're going to do our Rewind review where we recap the entire season. It has been renewed. If you're not finished with your first season watch through, I don't know what's taking you so long. It is a pretty fast show. So you could just pause right now, finish it, or don't worry because we'll give you plenty of spoiler alerts before we get into it. But that is coming a little later because first, as always, we have to deal with some streaming news. And I needed the urgent uh, breaking news sounds because we have David Crumholtz related follow-up. Diane, are you sitting down? Thank goodness I am. Please, fill me in on all things Crumholtz. As we all know, the Santa Claus, your favorite 1990s Tim Allen vehicle that's not home improvement, is being rebooted as a Disney Plus original series called, get ready for it, The Santa Clauses. Uh-huh. Because in this mm-hmm. one, he is looking for his successor. And we knew about this. We reported about this a few episodes back. But the, the scandal was that David Crumholtz, a.k.a. Bernard the Head Elf, a.k.a. Bernard the Hot Elf, was nowhere to be seen in the promotional photos for the Santa Clauses, leading many to speculate, Where, where's Bernard? Where's our Crumholtz? People need their Bernard. And don't worry. Don't worry, because you're going to get your Bernard, ladies and gentlemen. Great news. Disney Plus confirms that David Crumholtz is reprising the role in the Santa Clauses, and they have literally nothing else to say about it, which really reads to me as, oh, we didn't think of doing that. He wasn't in the third Santa Claus movie. You have to keep this in mind. David Crumholtz passed on being in the Santa Claus 3, which was probably the right move. Uh, And so it, it reads to me like maybe they didn't think to involve him because they thought he wouldn't be interested that seems like an odd move because he's obviously a fan favorite yeah i i mean that's what i think the the other question is obviously he's supposed to be an elf uh who has not aged heavily and yet he has aged a lot because he was way younger in 1994 uh he was also in the 2002 uh santa claus too let me be clear uh so i'll be interested to see aged they, like a fine wine Chris. yes truly <laughs> truly i'm i'm just what does uh are they going to shrink him are they going to use some like digital trickery to make him look elf sized or are they going to explain that bernard eventually became the tall drink of water we know as david crumholtz today Fans of David Crumholtz don't have to wait uh, for the Santa Clauses to come out. In the meantime, you can see him in The Deuce, streaming on HBO Max, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, streaming on Netflix, and Super Pumped, which we reviewed on this podcast. So if you're interested in checking out Super Pumped, you can see David Crumholtz as Sergey Brin and listen to the episode about it. Uh, I actually think he is one of the highlights of Super Pumped, and I would Agreed. not I would not personally recommend watching it just for him, but I don't <laughs> know how much you need your David Crumholtz fix right now, so consider it an option, okay? Uh, but maybe you want to fill the time between now and the holiday season with some other streaming options that are conveniently owned by Disney. And so you might turn to Abbott Elementary, one of our favorite new shows. We just talked about it on our last episode. Uh, Abbott Elementary, coming back for Season 2. Some news, though, about the streaming rights. It's already streamable on Hulu because Disney, of course, owns ABC. Disney owns Hulu. Natural place to get your Abbott Elementary fix. But recently, HBO Max announced that they've signed a co-exclusive streaming deal 
uh, with Hulu for season one of Abbott Elementary. And the way I read this is it's going to be a lot like what we came to expect from Netflix for so many years. For example, uh, a new season of Schitt's Creek comes out on Pop TV, which no one knows how to access. And at the same time, the previous season of Schitt's Creek shows up on Netflix and everybody binges that. And that's why the uh, all your friends were always one season behind on Schitt's Creek if you were somehow able to access Pop TV. Uh, so I think it's interesting that HBO Max is raising their hand and saying we would like to be one of those networks that helps drive one of those streamers that helps drive more traffic back to your currently running network show which again is something that like netflix used to do with the cw netflix used to do this with a bunch of shows and now Mm. that's not really in netflix's playbook and so it's interesting to see that it's not out of the realm of possibility but that it's now something that uh, different people might have a reason to to make the agreement for. Yeah, and I think uh, it may find some new fans there on HBO Max, and you can watch it without commercials. Yeah, I mean, you can watch it without commercials on Hulu if you want to pay if for that. You pay, I guess so. <laughs> you can watch it Obviously, with commercials on HBO Max if you want. There's options. Yeah, as Netflix CEO Reed Hastings would like to say, we want to give the consumer a choice to suffer through ads or spend money. And we know where Diane Nora lies. It's uh, a mixed bag of whatever the default was when she signed up for that app. And that's the secret right now, is that most people are just going to keep whichever one that was the one they had when they signed up. And Netflix is definitely hoping for that. If you're not paying for Hulu, you can still enjoy Abbott. So true. Speaking of the interesting business dynamic at a little place called Warner Brothers Discovery, a.k.a. Wabro Disco. That is, of course, the parent company of HBO Max. Uh, They're continuing their slow, quiet, perhaps agonizingly painful uh, decision to smother the life out of TBS in particular and some of the other Uh, programming directions, let's say, that were going on before the Wabro Disco merger. And so uh, this begins with some sad news. Full Frontal with uh, Samantha Bee, a fantastic late night show, is no more. Uh, Canceled after seven seasons by Wabro Disco. Yeah, I was disappointed to read this too. Um, uh, Sam B was uh, back on The Daily Show, one of their correspondents back in the day. And I have just been a fan of hers for decades now it seems um really disappointing to see this show canceled yeah and that show really carved out a niche for itself and a a unique voice for itself at a time when one there was just a lot of daily show alum getting shows that she seven seasons this was on so this really dates back to that era of colbert blowing up of john oliver blowing up and sam b at the time you think tbs well, the other ones are going to like CBS and HBO, big names. TBS is kind of second run. How long can she make that work on a network not really known for that late night comedy besides Conan, which, to be fair, I completely forgot about. And Diane did have to remind me TBS aired Conan for years. Uh, but still, the fact that they were able to make that brand work for TBS for so long, uh, amazing. Uh, however, mm-hmm. I think the writing was on the wall. I would be I would be shocked if the team at Full Frontal was caught off guard by this, just given the direction that uh, Warner Brothers Discovery has been going with all things TBS and all things TNT that are not the NBA, basically, or Big Bang Theory reruns. They love a good Big Bang Theory rerun. 
Ouch. Well, I hope that Samantha B gets a new show soon. Um, and she had so many talented writers oh, too. So, such a fantastic team. Uh, yeah. So hopefully uh, we'll see some exciting new projects from those folks. Hopefully we will. I bet we will. But that is not the only news of business pivots at Warner Brothers Discovery, because HBO Max is also just kind of openly announcing that they're getting out of live-action kids and family programming for the time being. And so they're canceling a series that, to be honest, I had not heard of, because I am not the target demo for live-action kids and family programming. Uh, But The Gordita Chronicles, which had just premiered and was getting good press, good reviews, Mm -hmm. uh, canceled with kind of a really warm message of cancellation cancellation from the network or the streamer in this case they 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 really sound like they like the show and it was getting a good response but that just openly they're not going to pursue that kind of programming right now uh very reminiscent of what they just did to a lot of their uh productions in europe mm-hmm. so uh gordita chronicles will be shopped around to other streamers um and networks so uh it may find another home soon yeah, I think that was also part of that the announcement that was really interesting to me, and perhaps why they had to just kind of outright say, this is just not an area we're investing in right now. Because otherwise, if you cancel it and try to shop it around, that doesn't look normal. That why did you cancel it? And and so I, you know, part of this, to, you know, kudos to them for throwing that much support behind uh, the creators of the Gordita Chronicles, which uh, I, again haven't seen it, but the logline sounded delightful and like great kids and family fare. It's uh, uh, set in the eighties. It's coming-of-age series. Uh, it's got strong uh, Latina characters anchoring the series. I, that sounds great. Uh, and so I'm glad that they are um, kind of putting their mouth where their money is in this case, because the, these pivots at Warner Brothers Discovery are a lot about getting the financial house in order, because you know Warner Brothers Discovery is a publicly traded company. David Zaslav has made no bones about the fact that he's going to run an efficient operation. He's known for that in his Discovery days. Uh, so in this case, it's not surprising to see them pruning areas of the business that maybe weren't that big or weren't that profitable, but to also come out and say, it's not because of the quality of the content. It's because we make business decisions sometimes. Let us, you know, fully endorse this work and hopefully it'll find another place. I think this uh, statement also shows the direction that they're looking to take HBO Max in. And it's not going to be this live action family shows. Um, it will be more content for adults, which is in line with the HBO brand. That's not surprising. And I think their their kids branding is stuff that leans more in the animation direction right now. They've mm-hmm. got they've got some of that from the Warner Brothers side of the business. So, uh, you know, all in all, not surprising, but interesting. And it did get me thinking about what's going on with renewals and cancellations. And of course, uh, many fans of the show might know that when I start to think about renewals and cancellations, we are forced contractually to play a game that we like to call renewed or canceled. This is a game that I play with Diane, where I gather a list of shows that have been renewed or canceled. And Diane then has to guess, has the show been renewed or canceled? Uh, This is an ongoing game, so I just want to update us on the scores. Currently, Diane has a 70.8% average, so about a 71% average, with 17 correct guesses out of 24 questions total. Today, we have eight shows on the docket. Diane, are you feeling good? Are you ready to tell us if it was renewed? or canceled. Oh, brother, I will do my darndest. 
That's exciting. That's the attitude I am looking for. And don't worry, Diane does get some help. She has two lifelines she can use. Uh, first lifeline, my favorite, she can ask me what network or streamer the show is on or was on, and I will reveal that. Uh, lifeline number two, she can phone a friend. Unfortunately, I am the only person she can phone as we are currently recording a podcast. Uh, so she can phone me, and she can ask me exactly one thing. Would I renew or cancel this show? That lifeline is not very helpful in my experience, but I still think it's a good idea. So one day, Diane, one day you're going to be happy I gave you that lifeline. Someday I'll use the lifeline correctly. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. But let's begin with our first series, Chad. Chad got canceled. I bring this up because it is a TBS show. And it Mm. did get canceled after one season. The second season is complete. And TBS has done something similar to what they said, um, what uh, Warner Brothers Discovery and HBO Max said about the Gordita Chronicles. Uh, TBS has said they're going to try to help the show's creators shop it around. I've heard it's great. I haven't seen it. Yeah, same, same. All right, but you're off to a good start. Uh, Question number two. iCarly. Oh, iCarly is renewed. That's correct. Renewed for season three on Paramount Plus, The Adult Adventures of iCarly. Next up, Dr. Death. Uh, okay. Um, canceled. I'm so sorry. Dr. Death has been renewed for a second season on Peacock. Dr. Death, I think, is the only original drama on Peacock. Uh, Whenever you see a a sizzle reel for Peacock and they're showing you, like, hot dramas, great sports, funny comedies, they've got a lot of clips of funny comedies to show. They're hot drama. It's always, like, one clip of Dr. Death and then Yellowstone, which they do not make. And I, I just think they had no choice to renew it because otherwise they would have no dramas. I guess I have to watch Dr. Death. Do you? (laughs) Do I? That brings us to our next question. Moonhaven. What's that streaming on, Chris? AMC Plus. Oh. Uh, hmm. I think Moonhaven was renewed. That's correct. It was renewed for season two on AMC Plus everyone's favorite plus. And that brings us to our next question. Close enough. Close enough. Close enough. Canceled. That's correct. Close enough was canceled after three seasons on HBO Max. It is a kids and family show. Interesting theme there. Mm-hmm. Next up, Resident Alien. See, I want to use the lifeline, but I don't think you've seen this show, and I don't want to waste a lifeline. Well, you have two so, questions left after this one, so if, if you're worried about wasting the lifeline, you just might want to throw it out there. I'm going to guess that Resident Alien got canceled. I'm so sorry, <laughs> and I have seen this show. Resident Alien is an Alan Tudyuk vehicle on sci-fi. Oh, well, he's great. He's great. So good for him. And he's the anchor. I'm not surprised it got renewed. You should have used that lifeline, Diane. I knew it would come in handy. (laughs) One of these days. All right. You're you're not doing too hot this round yet, but you got a chance to make it up in these final two questions. Wheel of Time. Not Wheel of Fortune. Always renewed. Wheel of Time. Is this based on that series of novels? That That is not one of your lifelines. Oh, come on. 
Okay, I think that Wheel of Time got renewed. That's correct. It is based on some of those whatever fantasy novels, and it airs on Amazon Prime. That brings us to our final question. I think you'll get this one. Dezu Samero. Oh, this is canceled, and I hate it. Don't. I mean, I like the show, yeah. so I hate the news that it's canceled. Um, yeah. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Well, there we go, though. I gave you a gimme at the end to get your score up. The total you got this round, one, two, three, four, five correct answers out of eight questions. Not your finest performance, but that's okay. There's always going to be another chance to play our favorite game, Renewed or Cancelled. All right, Diane. Are you feeling okay after that? I am. I'm, you know, keeping morale high. That's good. You know where else they're keeping the morale high right now? Netflix. Always. Always. I'm not sure they are. No, it doesn't sound like a really happy place to work right now. But, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. One way that they are very unhappy right now is in a scandal involving Bridgerton, specifically Bridgerton's unofficial musical, which was one of those things like the Ratatouille unofficial musical that started on TikTok as fan content. Then they did like Mm -hmm. a charity concert. And then they started trying to just like do shows uh, for money. But, but um, th- th- there's laws against doing that without obtaining the you know intellectual property rights to do so, uh, and it, it, they they did not. And what we've learned in the last few weeks is that Netflix repeatedly offered to let them license Bridgerton, which is the gobsmacking part of this. It's not that Netflix would never offer it, and therefore they felt cornered. And again, what they did was still illegal. Uh, They were using someone else's copyright to make money without permission. Uh, That is a problem, I would say. Even when the, the person's intellectual property is Shonda Rhimes and Netflix, it's still a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Julia Quinn, who is uh, the creator of Bridgerton, the series, also, you know, I I think was very complimentary when she spoke about um, Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear, the creators of the musical. You know, she was like... I feel really implicated by the story because one of them's last name is my last name. And I, you know, I I should say no relation, no relation. If she'd blown up and been super successful, might have tried to track down a relation. But in this point, no relation. No, never heard of her. Looked at the photo of her and went, doesn't really look like me. But you never know. You never know. If she were in less trouble, (laughs) it might might be In this situation, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. But, But Julia Quinn did acknowledge that she's very talented. Yeah. And they, they listen, they made beautiful music. It's just they also took dialogue directly from the show and used it. And that that is like really black and white in most cases. This is not a parody. It would be potentially different if it was a parody, but it, it's not. It's just a musical retelling of the same story. It's also not like they were doing this downtown somewhere or like in some tiny indie theater. They're doing it at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, There is a performance coming up there, which they're selling tickets for, which I'm going to guess may no longer happen. I I, I would suspect as much. 
Uh, what's, what, um, what I found interesting about this is the way it came up for me. Uh, Twitter recommended tweets about this to me. I had not been following this, and suddenly Twitter is sending me tweets, and the tweets they that Twitter was you know algorithmically feeding me from people I don't know, which I just love, and then engage with, proving that they should keep doing it. Uh, they were sending me tweets from people who were basically. Uh, trying to critique the backlash about this. And so then I had to understand what is the backlash about this. And it is a lot of fan communities are saying, well, this is Netflix, who's in the Netflockalypse. Oh, my goodness, they're losing money. So they've decided to squeeze the money out of these little indie creators on the scene that Barlow and Bear, they're the real heroes. That's apparently like the, the backlash that's been going on uh, on social media, which I understand the, I understand why people might react that way initially. But as we've just said, that is not the correct reaction. Just fundamentally, factually, not how things work, and not okay. Because sure, you're like, well, it's the big Netflix company's money; they have enough money, but. The same laws protect Joe Schmo writing a screenplay in his office or staying up late at night, shopping it around, hoping, hoping that somebody gives him an offer. And if we say it's okay for anyone to just take your complete idea, your literal lines of dialogue and reuse it to their own profit, no questions asked, well, then there's nothing protecting Joe Schmo's copyright. And that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, you really just can't be stealing things. No, <laughs> just... no. But where I can see people get muddled and where this reaction on social media came from is this began as a TikTok uh, fan ficky kind of thing, which is a, a whole genre. I have a friend who makes uh, Star Trek fanfic TikToks. He, he's a listener of the podcast. I hope you're listening. But uh, that's a huge community. And they're reusing mm-hmm. pieces of, of dialogue or audio from shows. And they're, they're, you know, literally sometimes lip syncing lines. But they're not making money. They're not charging people dollars to view those TikToks. They are generating that content for free on a social platform. And that is generally considered okay, fair use, because it's not for profit and it is fan fan created material on a social free platform. And that's mm-hmm. good press for companies. Where Netflix got really boxed in here, and, it, and it's a bad look for Netflix, but what else can they do? Is this t- this fell way over the line. I was going to say it tiptoed over the line. It kind of just just dashed, darted, jetted over the line uh, and put Netflix in a place where it's no longer uh, it's no longer part of the fan community. It's part of the business of Netflix. Yeah, we'll continue following this, too, uh, because, you know, they may be able to come to some sort of agreement, though at this point it seems like they've really reached a standstill. Yeah, again, back to the beginning of this, just stunning to me that Netflix repeatedly offered to let them license it. And that that's where it's like there, there's not even ignorance as a defense in that case. They, they, they told you repeatedly that this is what needs to happen if you want to continue making money on it. And they would have made money on it. And now they're not making money on it, and they're going to owe a bunch of money probably, at least to lawyers, if not to Netflix. Uh, so again, we'll keep an eye on that. It's, it's an interesting, um, again, intersection of fan communities and uh, business and seeing how in this especially like social media fueled and especially video, I'm sure and many people are aware of a lot of the shenanigans with TikTok and uh, Instagram pivoting to video. Uh, mm. That just opens up more opportunities for fans to reuse audio clips and content. And it, they're going to probably be more sticky situations like this in the future. 
But speaking of business decisions at Netflix, it wouldn't be a good week in the Netflocalypse without us looking at some extremely detailed bar charts about what's happening at Netflix. And don't worry, if bar charts are not your thing, dear listener, we looked at the bar charts so you would not have to. Uh, And this comes from a report from Paired Analytics, and it is dense, this report. There is so much going on in this report. If you want to geek out on some streaming numbers, the link is in the show notes, friends. Uh, But we wanted to top line some numbers around Netflix and franchise demand. And that is something I found pretty interesting. Diane, what did you think about the just imbalance between demand for franchises on Netflix and their actual like inventory of franchises, which is not as big? Yeah, I was very interested in this. Um, One thing I found super helpful, um, the article specifically defines franchise as it's used here because that word does get thrown around. Um, And uh, this is quoting directly from here. Uh, A franchise is a shared universe that features characters, occupations, or settings that overlap and maintain connective tissue via multi-platform and multi-delivery content. So uh, when we think of something like Stranger Things, uh, now having a stage show coming up and uh, potential spinoffs or sequels, that would be uh, a Netflix original franchise. Yeah. And also, uh, literally on that note, The Gray Man, uh, which has uh, recently premiered on Netflix, they've just announced a spinoff and a sequel, which turns The Gray Man into by this definition, a Netflix franchise. So something, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, people might just think big franchises like Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, but anything with a shared connective uh, tissue can technically qualify. Yeah, I loved the uh, example they gave of RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, You know, completely different type of genre, but, um, you know, has uh, several spinoffs and um, massive following. Yeah, and then characters or contestants in that case from different series appear in others, giving a sense of continuity even beyond the shared drag race cinematic universe. Great example. Uh, In this case, the numbers for Netflix were particularly interesting because overall franchise demand is about 36% of the overall demand for content on Netflix, according to Parrot. Uh, But the actual amount of Uh, Netflix's catalog that is franchises by that same definition is a little less than 10%. So Mm -hmm. less than 10% of their catalog is driving 35% of their demand. And then you break it down by original franchises, for example, The Gray Man, Stranger Things, and licensed franchises. For example, everything we used to watch on Netflix in the before times. Uh, (laughs) And there, Netflix has at least increased their original franchise content uh, a decent amount in recent years. But the way it breaks down of their overall library... Uh, it's basically 4.5% original franchises, 4.5% licensed franchises, and then about 90-some percent uh, just stuff. Just non-franchise. Non-franchise is Other what I mean content. Yeah. Other content. Uh, so in that, now we go back to what's the demand. And for uh, franchise demand, they again, they break it down. What's original, what's licensed. 24.3% of the demand on Netflix is for licensed franchise content, which is 4.5% of their library. So almost a quarter of their demand is for less than 5% of their content, and it is content that they do not own. They are just renting it. So this, to me, really explains why they've pushed Greyman so hard, because I was a little surprised they announced the sequel since Greyman didn't seem to be 
the massive hit they were hoping it would be and it must have been quite expensive um so the idea that they're announcing a sequel when it was only their fifth highest uh premiere seems surprising to me um but i think we're gonna see a lot more netflix original franchise content over the next few years yeah, and if you're curious uh, what lessons they may be learning from previous franchise attempts, uh, this article from Parrot Analytics goes into uh, the, the, a lot of the failures they've had, like Jupiter's mm-hmm. Legacy, and then compares it to some of the struggles that Disney had right before they acquired Marvel. And I thought that comparison was really good, because it also shows how Disney learned that you cannot just invent a franchise out of thin air, and we can now kind of see history repeating itself with Netflix. And uh, Disney solved it by just buying up all the franchises netflix can't really go that route now so they have to invent them somehow also interesting now that disney has these super successful franchises and they're looking for non-franchise content as well now um so i think that we'll see some of that as part of disney's strategy going forward yes well you know before we move into our review we're talking about franchises and there's no franchise that we love to track the movements of more than the harry potter franchise not because we have a special affinity to it but because due to a variety of confusing arrangements it continues to move streaming services so just a quick update for all you potter fans out there you have to go get peacock now i'm so sorry to bring it to you this is my my least favorite part of the job is telling you you must go subscribe to peacock specifically but you must go subscribe to peacock because uh, the seven or eight, eight core Harry Potter movies are moving from HBO Max to Peacock at the end of August. This is after they originally premiered on HBO Max when HBO Max launched, then they moved to Peacock, then they moved back to HBO Max, now they're back on Peacock, but then, don't worry, they will eventually go back to HBO Max because they are Warner Brothers, but they did license them to NBC Universal through a really strange arrangement that I just cannot stop watching. Well, once you've subscribed to Peacock, you can check out some of those great Peacock originals. You know Um, what? Like one that happens to be called The Resort. Some kind of dreamy, ominous ocean noise to transition us to our review of a dreamy, ominous show called The Resort, which is streaming on Peacock. Peacock, your favorite network for comedies, which may lead you to believe that this is a funny comedy. And I would not describe it that way. Uh, Would you, (laughs) Diane? No, I think that I had... I should start this by saying we watched the first three episodes, which are available to stream now, and we'll be discussing them. Um, the show is a bit of a mystery, so here's your spoiler alert for the first three episodes of The Resort. I thought that this would be a comedy <laughs> based on the fact that its uh, episodes are just over half an hour, and... Um, because the leads, William Jackson Harper and Kristen Milioti, both have really strong comedic chops. Um, it, one of the creators made Palm Springs, which is also a comedy um, of sorts. It's sort of genre bending. And this pilot, I had a bit of a hard time with because it's not funny. It's pretty dark. Yeah. Um, but as I continue to watch, I've become a pretty big fan of the show. And I'm, I'm really excited to be talking oh, about we, it today. Sometimes we talk about the show's 
before we record, but ladies and gentlemen and, uh, and people of all genders, I will tell you, we did not discuss this at all after the pilot, and we both felt a little weird about the pilot. And so I am really picking up what you're putting down, Diane, because the second episode in particular was, I could not look away. It was riveting mm-hmm. in a really specific way. And the third episode has a great twist at the end that makes a lot of sense, too, for the release strategy on this. They dropped the first three episodes together, and then they're switching to weekly. And I think that's the right move here, because now that I understand the first act of the mystery, you can slow it down and kind of let me enjoy the strange twists and turns that I am certain this is going to take. Uh, So where we are in this show... It's uh, set at a resort in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula in in Mexico, uh, near Mm -hmm. Acamal. And the the resort is the resort of the title, you'd think, but not really, because what we find out pretty quickly in the show is that it takes place in two different times. So the main story is taking place in 2022, and that is William Jackson Harper and Kristen Milioti as Noah and Emma. They're a married couple, no kids. They've been married for 10 years. They're here on their 10-year anniversary, and you can tell that they are in the doldrums of their relationship in many ways. And you can also tell that uh, Emma, in particular, is really beginning to have sort of an existential crisis around what what is her life essentially yeah they even have a shot of her up late drinking looking at some sort of like buzzfeed online quiz about like should i leave my marriage it it was pretty a, a grim moment yeah yeah. And William Jackson Harper's character, Noah, seems actually kind of happy with the state of their relationship in a lot of ways. He seems like somebody who does not have uh, outsized ambitions for his life, that he is doing what makes him happy in a lot of ways. They're both teachers is the the, the backdrop we get. Um, and they, they, they seem like a fun, they, you know, I will say there's a natural chemistry between them and they seem like a believable couple, that up front. And so the fact that their relationship is in this kind of strained place is believable, well-performed, but also one of the stumbliest parts of the pilot, maybe. I agree. I also think it's hard. We've seen the chemistry build up a little more in subsequent episodes. In the early episodes, part of the plot is that their relationship has sort of lost its spark. And so there's not a ton of spark between them in that pilot. Like, they don't really seem to enjoy each other's company. They're not really laughing a lot or anything. And so I found them a little unpleasant to watch just in that pilot. And I should say that I am a huge fan of both these actors. So I was a little like, oh, no. But keep watching. The payoff's great so far. I think so. I, and, and I agree. And I also think I'm not sure how I would adjust the pilot to do a better job of that. It, 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 like in so many cases, the pilot has a lot of work to do setting up the world of the show. And on this show, it has to set up the world of Noah and Emma. And then also take us 15 years back in time to 2007, where the other half of the show takes place. And this stars uh, Skylar Gisondo from uh, The Righteous Gemstones, which is a show that I absolutely love, and he is really great on it. And so it's fun to see him in something else. And he is kind of the main character of the flashback story. Uh, There he plays Sam, who is on a... Uh, Christmas getaway. He's like a, like a college student, 22 or something like that, on a Christmas trip with his parents and his girlfriend. And uh, we see in the pilot, and, and again, the, the way they start his story is also kind of a drag to get through. Uh, but again, 
for good payoff, I think. We see that he's flying to uh, a different resort, the resort of the resort, but in the same part of the Yucatan, uh, with his parents and his girlfriend, and he realizes as they're flying to uh, Mexico, and he looks at his girlfriend's razor, her pink razor flip phone, classic, that she mm-hmm. is in a relationship with one of her professors, including a really hilarious low-res razor flip phone dick pic uh, that then his father, played by the just perfect Dylan Baker, sees, which adds a great comedic subplot through the following episodes where his father thinks he might be gay. And in reality, he's dealing with the fact that he just discovered his girlfriend's cheating on him with a professor, and he's stuck on a vacation with her and his parents and doesn't know what to do with this information. Yeah, I really feel for Sam in this pilot. I have to say, too, um, I didn't know how adult the show would be. I kind of thought it would be um, more PG rated, um, but there is there is a, a penis photo in the first there, episode, and I was and like, there, "Oh my goodness, this is not for children." There's a penis drawing in the third episode. There's just <laughs> so much penis in this show, uh, and you know what? Tonally, it works. Tonally, it feels actually in the right place. I would say. Oh, it does. Yeah. Um, I just I just had no idea going into it. Um, yeah. No, I weird, oh. weirdly, I would I would say I don't know if they marketed the show the right way. But the truth is, I don't know if they marketed the show, period. Because the only place that I have seen an ad for this show is while watching this show on Peacock. And, I, and it also says a lot about Peacock's ad tech that they are serving me ads for the show I am currently watching as if I have not heard of it. Uh, and, and I will say, those commercials on Peacock, they do a decent job of describing the show. They play up that it comes from the creators of Palm Springs and Mr. Robot. And I would not expect a haha comedy from the creator of Mr. Robot. So in that way, they are setting the right expectation. But I think the problem is they didn't do a lot of advertising outside of Peacock for it. And so people just come in with the notion that these are two sitcom stars. I know him from uh, The Good Place. I know her from How I Met Your Mother. You know, they, you assume that they're going to be doing something in the sitcom genre unless the you know the network the streamer helps set the correct expectation going in yeah i think it also speaks to just how great those two are that they can play basically any genre yes they have these sitcom backgrounds but um you know they're very capable of the more dramatic stuff and also uh The story really becomes a mystery about what happened to Sam. Um, And as it becomes sort of like action adventure-y, they're also great leads in that sense. Yes. So this is where their stories come together. All of this happens in the pilot. You can kind of, I think, sense by how long it takes us to set this up, why the pilot is so difficult in some ways and hard to piece together. So again, Mm -hmm. I I do not envy the task of putting this pilot together. But what happens is uh, uh, Noah takes Emma on a kind of ATV trip. Uh, and she crashes her ATV and finds a like completely rusted, water-damaged razor flip phone that she pockets. And then, you know, she's got a little, like, head injury. They take her back. They stitch her up. She's okay. But she, she's, you know, not having a good time, to say the least. And she suddenly, suddenly becomes obsessed with this flip phone and goes into town and buys another old razor that works so she can move the SIM card over and and access the content on the phone, which were text messages and photos and a call log. 
So that 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 is the setup that then discovers the plot happening in 2007 because the phone belonged to Sam and the phone has text messages between Sam and the other main character in the 2007 story, Violet, who's there with her father, played by Nick Offerman, who is killing it in this show. Oh, his performance is so beautiful. I knew that he could do some subtle acting from knowing his background beyond Parks and Rec. Um, He was also great in Fargo. He's just really, he's playing a, a grieving father on this. And it's just gorgeous, this performance. I really, I almost cried. Yeah, I and honestly, he's, he's making me really feel the feels. And then you as the viewer know, Sam and Violet disappear and are presumed dead. And so right. you have this double feeling whenever he's alone and sad, as he is at the end of the third episode, when Violet leaves him to go to like a, a staff party at the hotel. And um, he's sitting alone at the bar and the security, you know, kind of head of security at the resort comes up and says, you know, sir, the bar's closed. Do you want to go back to your room? And he just doesn't even look at the man. Nick Offerman just says, you know, my wife died a year ago and my daughter wanted to come here for Christmas. And now she doesn't want to spend any time with me. And the delivery of that broke my heart. <laughs> and I have to say, the the scene then also does something kind of funny. And there, it, it's not an, it's not an unfunny show. It's just the humor is much more observational and much more visual than what you would be what you would expect coming in. I think. And so the the head of security uh, goes up to the bar, grabs a really nice bottle of tequila, puts it down in front of him, and says, "On the house, you can stay as long as you want," and walks off. And that's not that's not hilarious, but the, the visual of it, very pointed, very funny. A lot of the humor comes from just this really well-executed uh, sense of what, what the tone of the show is, what the genre and style of the show is. You do have to get over the confusing expectation mismatch if you come in thinking it's going to be a, a more sitcom show, but it does really seem to have a lot of confidence in the mixed genre outing it is. Yeah, and I think... Uh, again, just they have the cast to pull that off. Um, Sam's parents are played by, as Chris mentioned, Dylan Baker and his real life wife, uh, Becky Ann Baker. The incredible character actors. Just love truly, when I saw them sitting next to each other on the, the flight in the beginning of the 2007 story in the pilot, I squealed. I took a photo. Mm-hmm. I tweeted it. I, I would kill for a spinoff that is just Becky Ann and Dylan Baker showing me what it's like to be out of touch millennial parents do it do it peacock you know comedy you peacock comedy peacock (laughs) i i do hope that as the series progresses we get more of them because uh they're lovely in the moments that they have but you know more please yes and and also with that twinge of oh no we're gonna see them get really sad soon you just Mm -hmm. the ominous Mm -hmm. feeling there's ominous vibes all through this show. Uh, and and that picks up in the second and third episodes, which really is where I think the you get a sense of where, where the show is going and what it really is going to be in terms of kind of a twisty-turny mystery that is simultaneously a story about people falling in love and falling back in love. Yeah, it's it's been great to see uh, William Jackson Harper and uh, Kristen Milioti, like um start to 
refined that chemistry in their relationship. It just, uh, they even have a, a flashback to when they were in college, I think, to like whenever they first met. And they just have one of the dumbest conversations I think I've ever seen on television, uh, just like very silly on, on a beach. And it's really sweet. Yeah, once um, once you start to see what their relationship is, is so to speak or was when they were happier right once you start mm-hmm. to see those moments in the the second and third episode you understand the place they were in in the first episode it's not that they weren't betraying the right um, mood in the first episode like they were executing where their relationship was at that moment and it does feel right once you see where it could be or where it can go Uh, and there are these funny moments where they uh, are investigating the mystery they break into this old resort which has been abandoned because shortly after the disappearance a hurricane swept through completely washed away any evidence of Sam and Violet's disappearance and completely damaged this resort, the Oceana Vista, beyond any recognition or salvaging. And so it's been abandoned for 15 years. And they break in to the abandoned resort, trying to find clues. And at one moment, they start playing with their uh, flashlights as if they are lightsabers, unprompted, for no reason. And that is the kind of relationship that they have. That little moment gave me such a cute window into what I suddenly recognized as like, yes, I know people like that. I absolutely have friends who are, you know, have been together that long, too, and are in the doldrums of their relationship, but do have that kind of relationship with each other. Yeah, it seems very human and real, um, which is refreshing, even in this sort of um, fantasy story. This I shouldn't say fantasy, but the story is wild. Yes, and, and, (laughs) Um, and it does hinge heavily on you just going with uh emma's sudden impulse to be obsessed with this flip phone it really does not make any sense if you stop to question why did she go to these lengths beyond she's adrift she's lost she doesn't have anything to hold on to in her life and and she wants some excitement there is a moment in the pilot when we see Emma alone and she has a scar on her lower abdomen. And I was wondering if there may be um, something that they reveal about her having uh, miscarried or um, having had a cesarean section or something. That yeah, because she they, makes there a... Are a few comments about them not having children that seem pained. It doesn't seem like a, a choice that they're yeah, and she necessarily says, happy. She yeah. says something to the effect of that ship has sailed. Uh, mm-hmm. when when they're asked if they're getting away from the kids. Uh, so there is there's definitely some pain there, something going on there that may help better justify how how low she was or how desperate for something to reinvigorate her life that she was. I would have honestly killed for even just some shred of detail in the pilot that says, you know, and her favorite genre is true crime mysteries. On it, maybe that maybe if they did do that, I'd be complaining that that's too ham-fisted and on the nose. But I could have used just one dumb detail to say she. It's not. She's the kind of person who would think it's a mystery or would be engaged by a mystery. And we could still find out she is that kind of person, but I really could have used just a little, like, hanging a, a hat on it to say, yeah, that, that yeah. yeah, you know, we're, we know it's a leap to say, I'm going to go buy a replacement phone to investigate this mystery phone I found. And we know it's another leap to say, I want to know who this disappeared person was. But if you're somebody who's into that kind of stuff, if you're a true crime podcast nut or something like that, okay, sure, yeah. I'll go with it. Yeah, though I do think it's coming from a place of like 
sorrow and existential angst more than it is of like interest or I, well that um, is definitely yeah they they did not as as the episodes have gone forward they're definitely not going in a direction of she just loves true crime no they're, you're right in that there's probably some link to the the lack of a, a baby there's probably some link to the scar there probably is a much deeper uh, more psychological reason um However, uh, on our you know conversation about pilots and uh, sitcoms in our last episode, this is the situation where you you have to come in and just trust that later on it will explain why she made such a leap of faith in the beginning, and you just have to go with that and say, sure, I don't understand quite the logic that took you to we're going to investigate this abandoned Oceana Vista resort, but once you're there, I'm I'm in, and kind of what makes the second and third episodes work so well is that is the position that Noah finds himself in because he has no desire to do any of this and does not understand her leap of faith here but he also can sense that their relationship is in trouble and that she is going through something and so he says you know what screw it let's investigate and he gets kind of excited about it and goes along for the ride and then you as the audience feel like okay well Noah is my lens to what is real and what's not in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And William Jackson Harper is so relatable and charming that that's a fun lens. You know, I, yeah. I want to see through his eyes. <laughs> There's a great moment in uh, one of the, the second episodes where uh, they're talking to the original detective who investigated the disappearance 15 uh, years ago and then abruptly retired forever. And that detective is giving them some kind of like moonshine uh, and they're drinking it on his boat and it looks like they're having a great time and so much of that second and third episode the second episode in particular where this happens is they, they just drink their way through this investigation so we see them get progressively more impulsive and foolish and sloppy and there's a moment when he, uh, the detective goes to get something out of the other room on the boat this large boat and Emma turns to Noah and, and goes you're not drinking this are you? She's been, she's, even though she is drunk, because we've seen her take many drinks throughout this day, she's now in, like, detective mode, where she's swishing it and spitting it. And he's drinking it and getting the spins and getting progressively drunker. And there is just this adorable moment between them where he's so like, wait, you're, you're doing that? I didn't know that's what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, she's actually kind of wily. It's fun watching her go through the different clues. Even if, like you in the pilot, I was a little like, had to take a bit of a jump to see why she cared about the phone at all. Like, I think if I saw an old razor phone on the ground that was clearly damaged, I would just leave it on the ground. <laughs> but I'm so glad that she does and that she is so basically fearless going you know going through this resort because the adventure is really exciting and i want to find out what happens too i was like at the end of the third episode i was like oh no come on no no i want to know now i do i do i can't believe i have to wait a week i think this three episode drop was really really smart 
Yeah, it really sets it up well. And, and, you know, it's a 30-minute show, but 30 minutes plus the commercials. So it is like a solid 90-minute introduction into the story they're telling. And and it does not feel rushed. Uh, I actually feel like the pacing, once you get into the second and third episode, feels really good. Because there's some action elements as they go on the investigation. There's an amazing sequence in the second episode where they are absolutely plastered in the middle of the day and going into essentially the den of the enemy. They go to the enemy's lair. This uh, fashion house that is owned by the the uh, the Frias com- Frias the Frias family that also owned the Oceana Vista and also are just like notoriously known to have their their arms in every part of life in the Yucatan and they have the logo of the yellow snake with four noses that you never cross and there are clues that there was a text message uh, from Violet to Sam about beware the yellow snake with four noses so you know they scary scary and. They just kind of barge into this extremely ominous showroom for this company, for this kind of, you know, they they make uh, garments. So this is their, like, uh, headquarters, so to speak, but also their showroom for their most expensive stuff. And she barges in with no plan as to how to justify their their presence there. So she offers to buy a, like, $22,000 dress, just sight unseen, which, of course, they can't do. And they get their bluff called, and then they flee as they're being chased by, like, scary-looking agent men. And that chase sequence is both a really good action sequence like they run into a market Mm -hmm. and she's pulling on a hat and a scarf and trying to conceal her identity and it was also absolutely hilarious because they're drunk William Jackson Harper does not know how to like she again has this like savvy as an investigator naturally that you begin to see he does not and it is so funny to watch her try to, like, get him to do the savvy, slick thing. And then when they fail, they burst out again. And you can also see that they're kind of having fun. Right. It's uh, rekindling the love. And it has this sort of Nick and Nora vibe um, of the two of them solving this mystery together. And I do love the fact that she's just so much better at it than he is. Yeah. Yeah. And so they think they know who killed Sam and Violet. They think it's this kind of uh, black sheep of the the, the, the yellow snake family. Balthazar Frias. Balthazar Frias. And what a name. So good. So good. And at the end of the second episode, I could have been on like Team Balthazar did it too. But at the end of the third episode, and boy, if you need another spoiler warning, this is the big one. It looks like they accidentally killed him. Maybe. Yeah, he's certainly injured. Um, Yeah. They are in the hotel. They think they have found the old resort, the Oceana Vista. They've climbed up an elevator shaft to the penthouse, the penthouse that is seemingly where the last evidence of Sam and Violet was taken. It's a photo on the razor, and she is positive it was taken in this penthouse. And once they get in it, first, I got to be honest, I was like, how will the, it's a hotel. All the rooms pretty much look the same, right? But no, the penthouse looks very distinctive. And once they're there, you kind of get it like, oh, only this room could be that room. And it is a weird room which adds to the ominous vibes. And as they're investigating, Noah and Emma are investigating, Balthazar shows up, and they fight over the phone. And simultaneously, the phone gets dropped down the elevator shaft, and they throw a golf club at Balthazar's head, which was maybe not the best idea. But keep in mind, they're pretty impulsive and have been drinking way too much to be fighting with people. Let alone climbing up elevator shafts. That whole scene, I was just like, oh, God, oh, God. I know they're not going to kill them off in the third episode, but oh, God, don't do that. Yeah. 
the show does go to some dark places. Like, yeah, they may have killed Balthasar. And really, the Sam and Violet moments are the tender and sweet parts of the show, generally. But we know that... Or we seem, it seems very likely that something awful is right, going to happen to them. Potentially, the, they, they're going to die. Yeah, the Sam and Violet story is both very tender, sweet. It's coming of age, new romance. And it's so ominous because it's the whole show is about how they disappear and his phone is found in the jungle. And aren't they probably dead? We don't know that they're dead, but aren't they probably dead? Skylar Chisando, um, who you called out earlier as Sam, he's great. I really think he's going to be a huge star. Yeah. Um, also in Righteous Gemstones, I think he was in Booksmart, too. I, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of him. Um, the performance is really nuanced and lovely and funny, but not as, like, broad. Yeah, and very understated in a lot of ways. It's a great, <laughs> great performance. And Nina Bloomgarden, who plays Violet, uh, perfect also chemistry, great. really excellent. And she also has great chemistry with Nick Offerman, who plays her father. Yeah. Those scenes, we've already said, make me cry. But it's not just Nick Offerman. It's their dynamic together. Yeah, absolutely. They did have one flashback scene where they talk a bit about how um, her her mom's passing or it seems like it's been just after her mom's passing um that was also really tender i was kind of unsure about using a flashback within the flashback i, I did have a, a moment there where i was device. like oh no meta flashback flashback inception but i think that they pulled it off even if that's not my favorite storytelling technique um they were it seems that there was like a hospital bed um, that they were having some movers take away. Um, and so I think we can assume that she had been ill or something and then yeah. had died. And um, it was pretty devastating. But did you catch the spooky, ominous moment at the end of that mm -hmm. scene? She finds a book, a very specific, mysterious-looking book, and there's a particular page bookmarked, and there's a note from her mother, and there's a, a Spanish word there that appears again on post-it notes in the penthouse. Pasaje. Yes. Which is passage. So what is the passage? And there's a lot of visuals of passages in this show. And I do want to talk about the, the visual language of the show because the direction is a huge element of the tone and the style. Uh, the first three episodes are all directed by Ben Sinclair, who you may know as the writer, creator, and star and director of High Maintenance. And there is such a huge High Maintenance vibe to some of the visual mm -hmm. language in this show. This uh, third episode opens up with a, a kind of um, montage bicycle sequence that literally could be out of an episode of High Maintenance. In a great way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very talented. He also appears on the show uh, briefly. I, I think that we'll see more of this character um, because it's a little mysterious what's going on with his character. But, uh, you know, such a funny, um, idiosyncratic actor. Yeah, and, and, and an idiosyncratic director as well because his mm -hmm. visual language is really rich and uh, dreamy. And that's where, like you mentioned earlier, you're kind of veering into like thinking of the show almost as a fantasy show. There's a dreamy quality, a magical realism vibe that I felt through some of the episodes where if something a little um, unnatural happened or was hinted at, I would, would believe it. it. It's a show that's painting a picture that is just a little something's off. 
right? And that fits with the ominous nature of the show, but the way the visuals present it is just a little dreamy. Yeah, I really love it. Um, There's a lot of shots of like bodies of water that then also kind of look like eyes that are like morphing in and out of frame. It's really beautiful. Yeah, and in the pilot, when we finally arrive at the Oceana Vista in the flashback, there's this gorgeous uh, kind of single cam style, single take style tracking shot that goes all through the Oceana Vista, showing us all these different rooms and things happening. And then it passes through what I think is the penthouse. And there's a very strange vibe to this one room we pass through. And so it does a great job of both um, kind of moving the visuals beautifully and in a way that hints at the darkness and then hints at the ominous tone that's coming literally immediately because things get pretty ominous pretty fast. Yeah, I'm so glad that I stuck with this past the pilot, um, which if it had been released as a one up, I might have. And uh, I, I like just dying to find out what happened to these kids. Yeah, and in their plot line, they are in, speaking of the direction and the visuals, actually, in the end of the third episode, both the modern plot line with Emma and Noah and the 2007 plot line with uh, Sam and Violet, they're both in the penthouse at the, at the same time, he says in air quotes, because, mm-hmm. of course, this is like a, a storytelling device. But the way that that scene is cut together, where they wind up hiding in the same closet and have the same, you know, uh, panicked moment of hearing somebody coming into the room, the way they cut that scene together is so tense and leads us to the simultaneous kind of cliffhanger moments of oh my god did they just kill balthazar in 2022 and in 2007 somebody rips open the the closet door are they about to be murdered i would suspect given that there are five more episodes left in this season they are not about to be murdered and that the story is about to turn in a very different direction Agreed. I, I think that's a, a fair guess, but I'm not. But it does seem like they are in serious danger. Oh, it does. Um, and I think that a suspense can be hard to pull off and maintain on television. Um, it's got like you know such a rich film history, and so I'm really excited about the way that this show is playing with genre. Um, I think it, it, it's just a very, very good mystery. Same, same. And I did. Uh... Think of another show that if this is intriguing you, you might want to go check out. I will admit I stole this comparison from a review, but I think it's perfect. This reminds me a lot of the first season of TBS's Search Party. The first season in particular, because it starts with the same uh, idea of a protagonist who's adrift in their relationship, adrift in their career, adrift in their life. The only difference is uh, it's somebody who's like 22 instead of somebody who's in their you know mid-30s. But uh, given that Search Party started like almost a decade ago now, it honestly reminded me so so much of it because I was like yeah and in a way Dory would be that age now if Dory had mm-hmm. never gone on the adventure she went on in search party this is the moment in her life where she might go on it again trapped in year 10 of her marriage to Drew there, there really was something to it where I was like oh the themes feel very similar and then the leap of faith that they grab onto something to be obsessed with in search party it's the disappearance of a classmate that she was barely friends with and in this show it's the discovery of the cell phone and the mystery about somebody she doesn't even know. 
And in both cases, you just you you know the character well enough at a certain point to understand why they decided to grab onto that. And I will say Search Party being more of a comedy, more of a, a satire is able to establish that leap a lot more clearly in the pilot where this show's genre is different. It is a similar story in some ways with a similar uh, protagonist and similar themes, but it's a completely different genre of storytelling. And so it is a bit of a slow burn to get into it. And it's definitely takes a little patience to understand what the tone of the show is. And I think once you do, and hopefully if you listen to this and you're intrigued and you go watch it, you have a better expectation than we did going in. And you might find that the pilot's fantastic. Yeah, I look forward to rewatching it once the season finishes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I mean, if it's a satisfying conclusion to the mystery. Well, that's why I'm not going to waste my time rewatching <laughs> it yet. I'm going to wait until the season finishes and decide if I liked it. Yes, though it is fun to rewatch this type of show to see if there are clues that you may have missed. Yeah, you and know? I can tell this is because a, a so clues show. Rich. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, And we'll also see Ben Sinclair is not directing all of the season. He directed the first three episodes, and they are handing it off to other directors for the rest of the season. Uh, And I suspect that might also hint that Ben Sinclair is in more of the show as an actor in the later episodes. Uh, Either way, I'll be interested to see if the visual language remains as consistently rich and dreamy, or if the other directors bring their own style. Uh, And we will find out. And then we will probably talk about it here in a Rewind review. What do you think, Diane? Oh, please. I would love to. And I would love to do a Rewind review right now. Why not? (laughs) And we're going to talk about The Bear. We're going to do a little Rewind on The Bear Season 1, which we reviewed the... How many episodes did we review of this show, Diane? The first three? The first two? I think two. That feels right. Well, now we've reviewed them all right now. So this is your spoiler alert for season one of The Bear on Hulu. A show that had more of a surprise twist than I was expecting at the end. Yeah, boy, we just finished talking about twists in the resort. Yeah, so really, again, warning, spoiler alert, because The Bear takes a very strange twist, in my opinion, in the season finale. And I am looking forward to season two, but I have questions. As do I. I think that this is a show I will say that I enjoyed watching. Um, it's very watchable. It's really only about four hours of content. There's eight episodes, and they kind of fly by. They really do. It moves fast. And and in it particular, it kind of ramps up and accelerates as the season goes on. So the last few episodes for me flew by once I hit them. Uh, and episode seven in particular, I think is less than 25 minutes long and is probably the best episode of this series, in my opinion. But I also think that when you think about the show instead of just enjoy it, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, concur. I don't know that that's a problem. That's the thing is, it's a vibe. The show is a, is an energy, it's entertaining, it moves quickly, the performances are fantastic, and the characters feel real. I think if the character, if, if, the, if stopping to ask questions made me think these characters are phony or fake in some way, the magic would, would wear off. But I don't. When I stop and think about what is what doesn't make sense to me, it's all plot-based stuff. And it's all choices about kind of what the story is overall is the individual characters all have interesting stories and are are really just wonderful to spend time with and this is the kind of show where why are you here you're here because you want to spend time with these characters you want to spend time with this chaotic fun energy that that is what you're tuning in for i agree yeah i think there 
Another reason that people are tuning in is thirst. Um, it's been uh, noted across the internet, but that people are really attracted to these actors. There's something about um, the pace of the show and the setting of the kitchen um, that, I mean, also, I think the show has like a strange eroticism, which is strange for a show that has very little uh sexual no, content at all n- like none and there's not even none. a like will they won't they budding romance between some characters like no. it's not at all a, an area they've been interested in uh, but yes J- jeremy allen white's extremely attractive and has that certain je ne sais quoi of working in the kitchen and it has become a thing. We have a link in the show notes to a, a New York Post article that was highlighting line chefs in New York City who say that they have been getting the most action of their lives since the bear premiered. What a time. <laughs> what a time to be alive. And listen, it's a great show. It's just, I wonder quite what the overall story is. Because going in, it's about inheriting his brother's sandwich shop and dealing with the trauma of his brother's death and kind of the trauma of his life trying to be a hot young chef in New York where we can really see it's a terrible, high-pressure, stressful place where they wear you down. And so it's initially about that. And can he make the shop work? And then we find out the shop's in debt. And then we think, oh man, so there's this added pressure. He's really got to like transform the shop and turn it into a working kitchen and it's so chaotic right now and surely if he brings some order and some change and and that's the story how will that happen and and that's not how i would describe the show after the season finale i don't know what the plot of this show is i'm gonna be honest i watched eight episodes and i watched a bunch of them twice because then my boyfriend watched it um while i was home it seems like part of it is trying to Carmi trying to overcome the toxicity of these kitchens and make something else. And on that front, he fails really poor, really miserably in episode seven. We see yeah. it. Um, uh, both him and Sydney uh, have sort of a breakdown moment. I was also confused as to why she was like demanding an apology in the end of this season there were a lot of microaggressions over the course of the season by the character Richie we talked about some of those last time Um, so for that he should apologize for sure but she is so abusive to him in episode 7 I really did not like where they went with her character and I really love this performance so I was disappointed Um, I actually don't know that I think this show is great I I think it's watchable but it's fun. It, it's enjoyable. Like I said, it moves. You feel the mm-hmm. action. But it, when you look back on what did I just watch, I have the same questions. Because like episode seven, you highlighted it as one, the shortest episode, and two, probably the best episode of the season. And it also has this moment with Sydney at the end that I also hated. Just just outright thought, oh no, this episode was so great, and you just left such a sour taste in my mouth at the end. And then episode eight just wraps the season up and introduces this crazy twist we will talk about in a moment but it i really felt such it was such a bummer that just as they were hitting the heights of episode seven which is a super contained almost uh single take style 
uh, crisis in the kitchen. Everything's moving in basically real time. It is kind of, in a way, the epitome of the tone of the show and the things that people are latching on to, the chaos, the high pressure, the high stakes, uh, the energy. The high stakes over food. Let's also keep in mind, part of what I think is really attractive to this is uh, kitchens like this are a place where the stakes are so high over something where objectively the stakes should be so low. Will we be late delivering this sandwich to the customer, right? But that is part of the magic of the show. And it's true. It's not like they just invented these high stakes in kitchens. This is a real thing in the real world. And so I think part of that success is the fascination with it. Yeah, absolutely. And folks have commented a lot on how accurate it is to yeah. the kitchen experience. And, and again, it does mirror seven. my experience working in the kitchen. Yeah, episode seven right. feels like a real chaotic day in a real workplace like this. And then it kind of hops off a cliff at the end of the episode and you go, no, that wasn't what I wanted. And then episode eight kind of doubles down on on jumping off the cliff. If they kind of hopped off a short cliff before, they'd like take a swan dive off of you know, Mount Everest in in the finale uh, to use a just absolutely twisted terrible metaphor because in the finale they find a ton of money inside of tomato sauce cans seemingly left for them by Mikey the dead brother and that solves all of their financial problems and now they're going to close the bear or the the Chicago's beef whatever the, the name of the beef shop was and reopen it as a new upscale bougie kind of lunch spot called the bear it's a completely different concept for a show <laughs> It's just like, oh, next season, it'll be this other thing. Except it seems like it always wanted to be about high-end restaurants. Nothing about this made sense as a sandwich place. How are they not? They had no to-go business. They sell sandwiches. And then part of Sydney's recommendations for the restaurant were to get rid of sandwiches at night. It's like, you're a beef place. Yeah, what they, are you doing? They did talk about some things as if they were like a real sit-down uh, establishment, like, you know, seatings and things like that, where I'm sense. like, I'm firing a sandwich. It, a lot of it did feel a little like, I just, yes, that's really how a kitchen works in a real restaurant, but that is not necessarily how the kitchen in a to-go sandwich shop works. It's not how the kitchen in a Jimmy John's works. Not to say that Italian no. beefs are Jimmy John's. Italian beefs are in their own stratosphere. But th- there is that that element of it always felt a bit of a mismatch. And I thought initially that the direction of the show would be, you know, um, you know, Michelin starred chef bring, you know, has the culture clash of his crazy high octane kitchen ways with the messy fun chaos of the blue collar kitchen. And that that is what I thought the show was going to be about primarily. And it is not really there there are elements of that certainly but they've decided no it's actually a show about turning the blue collar restaurant into the michelin starred you know innovative cuisine yeah but why does this show have such disdain for the blue collar kitchen i think you know i have as much respect for beef sandwich as i do for whatever is happening at the risotto or linea or the places i can't afford to eat Yeah, and also the most interesting and likable characters on this show to me are the people of color who are working in the kitchen. Um, Tina is fantastic. Marcus is really interesting. I love the dynamics that he's bringing to the show. I would much rather give them more screen time and see things about their lives. But right now, they're not given a ton of detail. Like, what neighborhoods are these people from in Chicago? They just feel, like, really, really underdeveloped. And 
uh, I don't know. I it, it, it feels kind of classist to me that like, oh, we're supposed to be happy that he's going to make some really fancy restaurant, another really fancy restaurant in River North. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. Uh, also, don't they owe someone $298,000? Oh, like, yeah, they owe all that money to Oliver Platt's character. But I guess that's solved by finding all that money in the tomato sauce cans. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe it's I really, guess. really quite a lot of money. Okay. Right? Um, and you'd think maybe that'll come up as, like, where did the money come from? Maybe that'll be part of season two. But I, I really, it was such a huge deus ex machina in the most classic yeah. sense of the term that Carmi finally is given the note to him from Mikey, which Richie did stumble upon many episodes ago. So this was foreshadowed that there was a note to Carmi from Mikey, and Richie decided not to tell Carmi about the note. And then Carmi finally mm-hmm. gets the note. And all the note is is, like, a quick message to Carmi that's like, you're going to do great. And it's written on the back of... Of the recipe for family meal spaghetti and so he follows the recipe and makes the family meal spaghetti and guess what the tomato sauce that is apparently only used for family meal spaghetti and nothing else that's the tomato sauce cans that are full of money so it's some kind of message from his brother but I just staring at that scene was like, so I don't understand. Would they never have found the money otherwise? Do they not use the tomato sauce for anything? The, there were large portions of their kitchen storage taken up by this tomato sauce. There was, there was just this moment where I'm like, already this is absolutely a deus ex machina. And on top of it, it's kind of a sloppy one. Very. And literally, too, because they opened <laughs> the spaghetti cans and there's like sauce all over the kitchen. It's there's a lot of messiness on this show. Um, it is confusing. I guess we're supposed to be happy for Carmi that he gets to make this nice kitchen. And uh, he and Sydney do have a reconciliation. Again, I don't understand why she isn't apologizing as well, because she was also incredibly abusive. I don't, I, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're going to find out. They could go a lot of directions with this. I'm going to watch it probably. Yeah, it could turn into a show about how Sydney, you know, begins to transform into the kind of kitchen monster that she hated and and then has to learn her own lesson. Like, there's so many character directions for the show to potentially explore uh, that part of me is like, maybe that's the idea is we see Sydney uh, become the thing Carmi hated and then Carmi has to, you know, change his ways or Sydney has to change hers or maybe they'll just find a whole bunch of cocaine inside of the flower and open up a franchise. I don't know. I don't either. I think spaghetti was on the menu and then they took it off the menu. Yeah, there is then some Why was line the recipe for family family meal? It doesn't. The, the, the recipe does is, not like, make sense. is like two things. It's literally like tomatoes, use the small cans, they taste better, and garlic. And that's the entire recipe. But you know, like they had to put in the detail about the tomatoes and the cans so that when you stop the frame on that recipe card, you're like, oh, the tomato cans, That's that's a message. Okay. I mean, the one other thing that really I haven't been able to stop thinking about in episode seven, they start off with this montage of the city of Chicago. Oh, yeah. That is unforgivable. I'm sorry. We we do just need to disqualify the show right now. It was so ridiculous. It was like Barack Obama. 
it literally it literally was if you were the chicago board of tourism making a 60 second sizzle reel to go before some youtube video as a come visit chicago psa this is the sizzle reel we've got the l and baseball teams and the souf john stevens song aren't you excited to come see our bean barack obama (laughs) but it was serious Once again, it's a Chicago show for people who only have heard of the idea of Chicago and never actually set foot in Chicago. But that's yeah, it's a fictionalized version of some entirely different place, also called Chicago, uh, populated completely with people from New York. That's correct. That's correct. Listen, they've been doing that to New York for years. It's only fair they do it to some other cities too. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I am going to keep watching. And it's kind of fun that it seems that this show has really, really taken off. And for an FX on Hulu show, that doesn't always happen, you know, so it's cool the way that it's really exploded. Yeah, and honestly, I'm excited that something that kind of is a unique genre that we don't see a lot of on TV right now, this kind of short-form drama, for that to be a hit, I think that's actually great for the creative uh, scene overall. Absolutely, and I do really enjoy some of the minor characters on the show, and I hope that they'll become more central uh, in the later seasons. Yeah, yeah. I would say as much as we have critiqued where they went uh, at the end of season one, we're both definitely going to tune into season two because there's just so many possibilities for what they could do next. And uh, that is not a bad place for the show to be in just in terms of longevity and demand. Yeah, and I have talked to a lot of people that like this show. If you're one of those people, we would like to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you like about it, what really worked for you, um, because it is a show that I continue to think about and like we said, we'll continue to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Podcast at streamageddon.com. That is how you can send your thoughts and feelings to us. Please do. You can also reach us on Twitter. I'm at I am Chris Barlow, and Diane is at Diane Nora, Diane with two N's. But that is it for our uh, rewind review of The Bear and our review, our first review of that other show The Resort on Peacock. <laughs> And with that, we have to take a little uh, summer Saturday break here. I've had my air conditioning off for two hours now, and there's a panting dog at my feet. So while normally I would tell you all, go stream something right now, I'm going to say go take a walk and listen to another episode of our podcast, leave us a review, and then come back and stream something, because the streaming world never stops.